Hello, and welcome to Test Podagogy, the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning produced by the editors and writers at TES. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy, and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom practitioners today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes on past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week our guest is Peps McRae. McRae is a former teacher, school leader, and senior lecturer in teacher education. Today, he is the Dean of the Learning Design at the Ambition Institute and is the Director of Research and Development at Step Lab. He's also the author of three books with another on expert teaching on the way. In this episode, he talks about the science behind motivation, something which is so important all year round, but particularly at this time of the year, as students look towards their summer exams. To begin with, he explains what exactly motivation is and how motivation can change as the student progresses through school. So I think like in my experience of being a teacher, I, I've always found the concept of motivation to be quite a slippery one um, and one that sort of has a bit of mystery around it as well, especially with regard to motivating pupils in the classroom. Um, and so that's like when I sort of spent a lot of time digging into this stuff when I started working on the book, one of the first things I wanted to try and do is to kneel it down a little bit more um, make it something that we can, uh, it was, it's a little bit less mysterious, a bit more scientific perhaps, and something that's related to the classroom. And where I kind of ended up is that motivation is probably best thought as a way of allocating our attention. Okay, so I just need to like unpack that a little bit. And probably the best way to think about it is that at any given moment in time, whether it's like right now or in the classroom, um, we are bombarded by lots of different bits of information that are competing for our attention. And our brain needs some kind of way of figuring out where to allocate our attention to all of these different options, uh, because we only have like a little bit of attention to go around. We really, you know, we can't attend to multiple things at once. And this is really important in the classroom because what we attend to is what we end up thinking about. And what we end up thinking about is what we end up learning about. And so it's, it's quite, you can see how it's quite an important mechanism when thought about in that way. And so, yeah, that's really how I think like the most useful way that teachers can think about motivation as this, as, as a kind of a mechanism that allows our brains to sift through all of the options that are available to us in terms of where to allocate our attention and then decide like, where's the best place to, to, to invest our attention going forward. And so how motivated then? naturally are students yeah so there's sort of like there's there's a few few ways to answer that question like f- firstly the literature suggests that it, it's not so useful to think about motivation as a kind of personality trait as it were so it's not really useful to talk about people being motivated or not you know like oh, peter in my class is really motivated like it doesn't really pan out that way as like humans, we're, our motivation is much more situation specific. So we tend to be like motivated towards particular things for particular reasons in a particular set of circumstances. 
Um, so, you know, my son is like heavily motivated to play Minecraft <laughs> when he comes home from school, but like Charlie's like his motivation levels for putting on his socks in the morning are very different. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we can't really use these broad brush strokes to uh, kind of characterize people's motivations. And then the other part of the question around like actually how motivated are pupils? The, the evidence on that is, is a bit depressing, actually. The evidence suggests that pupil motivation tends to decline fairly, like constantly throughout a school pupil's career. So, so, you know, there are a number of different like hypotheses for why this happens. Um, but essentially like it's not, it's not a great thing, I suppose. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I feel like as a, as a profession, we should kind of be doing all we can to figure out what motivation is and how we can influence it. So we kind of stem or, you know, reverse or at least stem this decline of motivation, people's motivation throughout their school career. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously when pupils get to, year, you know, year nine and they, they're choosing their options and they're choosing the things that they want to study for GCSE, you would think that because their kind of diet narrows to what they've chosen to study, that they would be more motivated in those subjects rather than less. Right, absolutely. And actually one of the kind of like hypotheses that people have about why people motivation declines is because because of that narrowing. So there's, there's something strange going on there. And I can't, like, I, I, I don't profess to understand it or have spent a lot of time like digging into that literature. Um, I just know it does decline. There are a few competing theories for why. And one of them is this kind of narrowing of the curriculum, which you're right, feels really counterintuitive. Like the other hypothesis is that this is just ad, just a, a kind of side effect of adolescence. So, you know, as you kind of, you know, always kick in and head into puberty, you uh, like can identify with different groups and things like that. And that ends up kind of like having a detrimental impact on your motivation for like your schoolwork and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, obviously you want to, you don't want to be spending your time in school. You want to be outside of school with your mates. and Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it, yes, but it all depends on how you perceive like these different groups that are available to you. And so I think there are some things we can do as like school leaders and teachers to kind of influence the different ways that people perceive those different groups so that they might be more inclined to be like, want to be part of the school group. Which would, which would have a reverse effect on that declining motivation. Yeah, because then they want to be at school and they want to be with their, yeah. with their friends learning in, in, that, in that setting. Right. When discussing motivation then, two terms are common. Intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. But what exactly do these mean in practice? To begin with, McRae explains extrinsic motivation and its place in the classroom. You know, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation is a kind of a classic. Um, classic way of like chopping up motivation and thinking about it a little bit um we'll talk about the differences in a second but first it's really important to actually call out that there are quite a lot of similarities you know when you neuroscientists look at uh, how those two different types of motivators affect and our, our motivation like from a neurochemical perspective and then like a really you know really fine-grained perspective it, it, they both look the same so they both use very similar mechanisms and catalyze like you know, different uh, neurochemicals, dopamine, things like that in similar ways. So at a certain level, 
intrinsic and extrinsic motivation are, are the same thing. They end up like having the same effect. However, the difference really then is more from a, a cognitive perspective around like what you're actually building the motivation towards. Um, and so, you know, extrinsic really is classically about building um, indirect motivators that kind of help you, like, that, that intended to motivate you towards the, 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 the good thing you're after. So the classic example in the classroom is, you know, um, bribing pupils with sweets or something similar to that. Uh, um, so if I say to, you know, my pupils on a Friday afternoon, um, let the team, you know, if you do these practice questions, you know, if you, you know, work hard on those, I'll give you some sweets. Then what I'm doing is actually um, a couple of things. Firstly, I'm directing their attention partly towards the sweets <laughs> as much as the, you know, the fractions or whatever else I'm trying to teach. So there's a little bit of um, a counterproductive action going on in terms of managing, optimizing their attention. But secondly, then there's uh, an issue around like that the like the sustainability of those extrinsic rewards because you know if I withdraw the sweets the you know motivation levels then return to baseline and actually worse than that there's you know some evidence to suggest that motivation levels um, when you remove like extrinsic reward actually return to below the baseline because you've kind of sent this sort of unconscious message to pupils that the thing you were asking them to attend to is actually less value than they may have originally thought. And therefore, therefore they kind of re they like recalibrate their assessment of how valuable it is and end up like lowering it. So extrinsic rewards, there's definitely evidence to suggest that extrinsic rewards can have a like negative effect in the medium and longer term. However, they are, can definitely be used to like get pupils to a certain point to get people started. Um, where intrinsic motiv motivators can't be as powerful. And so I think like the best way to kind of think about it is, uh, you know, using Daniel Willingham's rules of thumb, which are use extrinsic motivators as little as possible and withdraw them as soon as you can, basically. So, um, and, you know, if you need to use extrinsic drivers, that's fine. But just, uh, yeah, only, only if you need to. The alternative to this then is where intrinsic motivation comes into play. Here, McCray says that there are five methods or core drivers which build this intrinsic motivation. The first is about prior success rate. So from a teacher perspective, it's like the thing you probably want to do is increase pupils' feeling of prior success. Um, and so we do that by making sure that every time we teach them that they are successful in whatever they're doing. And you know, to, to achieve that, really, the best thing we can do is teach really well. <laughs> so, you know, the, the kind of like one of the underlying messages of of the kind of science of motivation for learning really is that the best thing we can do is to teach well. And on top of that, there's a whole lot of other stuff we can we can we can add, but that's the kind of key thing. So, stuff like you know, explaining well, breaking stuff down, pitching it correctly, making sure there's ample opportunity for practice and feedback, all of the stuff that teachers like kind of know uh, that's bread and butter. Like get that stuff in place because that increases the chances of of success. However, there is also some other stuff we can do um, to go further than that. For example, um, success is quite a subjective thing, and so some pupils in your class may have a very different vision of what success means to other pupils in your class, even compared to you, and that can be quite problematic because you, as a teacher, might like teach really well. 
and think that, you know, that's a really successful experience for your pupils, but actually because they have some kind of warped view of success and failure, they end up leaving your lesson thinking that's a, 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 like a failure for them. And that adds up over time. Um, and, you know, if pupils can look back and say, oh, you know, I've been successful time and time again in this context of learning math with this teacher, then they're going to be much, much more likely to invest their attention in whatever it is you're offering them then. Conversely, if they look back and they just see a whole stream of failures, then of course it makes complete sense to just be like, I'm not going to invest lots of energy and effort and attention in this thing. Like it's, it's a re- you know, total, totally sensible thing to be doing with your resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's also really po- important as well as like you know, teaching well is framing success clearly. And that just entails, you know, you as a teacher making it really explicit what success means in your classroom. So, you know, just by saying to your pupils, look, in this class, success is not about you getting everything done. It's not about you doing it first time or doing it perfectly. In this class, success is about you, you know, trying really hard, asking questions when you don't get it, helping your peers, um, you know, focusing on like being, knowing more and being more skillful than you were last time, not like trying to beat other people, whatever it is, you're kind of like, really spelling out that that view of success, which will then increase the chances that your pupils uh, like define success in the same way. And therefore, it, like when they look back, there's a higher chance that they have a mm-hmm. success in the past. So at some point, every pupil in that, in that classroom should be able to say, I've succeeded at this. They might not all necessarily be the same things, but at least you leave with a feeling of, well, I've done this right. Right, absolutely, yeah. And so it's basically the whole, like a whole bunch of things that you know could go wrong or people could interpret as a failure if you kind of leave it up to them that makes sense Mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of about like reframing failure as well in that then isn't it kind of like you know just because you might not have got the answer right this time like look at all this work you've done before it and you're almost there and like I guess yeah kind of that re reframing what failure is absolutely yeah 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 and because because like failure is inevitable in the classroom like the the point of learning is that you don't know it yet. And it's, you know, it's in order to get there, it requires effort and challenge. And so, you know, failure is inevitable. And so kind of getting in front of that can be really helpful in saying to the class, look, it, it's, you know, learning is messy. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get some, some stuff wrong. Um, but that's totally okay. And that's fine. That's like why we're here. And when it happens, all that matters is that you learn from your mistakes, that you are open and ask for feedback when you don't understand and that you put in the effort to try and like, you know, wrestle the stuff when it's hard. Um, And so, yes, like mitigating failure is kind of as important as bringing success. The next method is about routines. McCray explains that if we can embed routines into the classroom, we can lower the amount of effort required to pay attention to the process of learning so that pupils can give more attention to the content. Success is very much tied to this idea of like when your brain is trying to figure out where to allocate attention, it's looking for the high value opportunities. But it also like looks at the costs of the opportunities as well. So it does a bit of this like cost benefit calculation. All of this happens unconsciously, by the way, like our brains aren't doing any kind of like or we're not doing any kind of like calculations of, oh, is it better to be, you know, focusing on the teacher or thinking about lunch or looking out the window or talking to my mate? Like all of this happens massively unconsciously. Otherwise, um, we just wouldn't be able to function in, in life because you just like working out the value and the, the costs of each of these things would take you know, months and the opportunity would have passed. So Rain does just like off, does a lot of this unconsciously really fast using things like emotion and the heuristics, which is a word for rules of thumb. 
anyway, important to just like lay that out. But one of the the kind of things our brain looks like is like, what, what's the what's the effort? What's the cost that I'm going to have to invest in this to get this success, get this value? And this is quite tricky in the classroom because we don't really just want to reduce the amount of effort. We just don't want to make it easy. You know, this is what kind of comes out of a finding that comes out of behavioral economics is that when you make things easy for people, they're more motivated to do them. But, you know, if we make things too easy in the classroom, then people are not going to learn anything. Like we said earlier, learning is by its nature effortful. So how do we kind of square this circle? And one of the kind of answers to this question is uh, routines, routines and habits, because what routines and habits do is they lower the amount of effort and attention that is required to pay attention to the process of learning so that pupils can spend more attention and have to put in less effort altogether on the content of the learning. And so you kind of like routines basically redistribute the available attention and effort. And as a result, you end up with like higher levels of motivation. So basically like putting in place routine in the classroom alongside success is a really powerful kind of combination. Um, when you, so I was going to say, when you're talking about these routines, are you kind of talking about the sort of stuff that Doug Lamoff kind of advocates for, you know, the like... Um, everybody put, puts their hands up at the same time, or you when someone else is talking, you look at them and you and you nod along. Is it is it those sorts of things? Right, absolutely, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, the, all the, all those kinds of routines. What they do is they, um, if you do them regularly, and they become familiar to pupils, and they become a, to a certain degree automated by pupils, so people don't have to think about them, think about them. People can then spend more time thinking about the actual content of the lesson. And now those routines aren't always just kind of behavioral. I suppose you could categorize routines into two camps. There's like the behavioral routines, which is like get your pupils in nice and like smoothly and have them sat down and hand out the books in a particular way so that it's efficient. And those behavioral routines create the time and space for learning. So they're really useful. But then there are also more instructional or pedagogical routines which are focused on, you know, helping pupils to like pay as much attention to possible to the content. And so that can be like a questioning routine whereby you use a particular questioning protocol um, every time for kind of similar topics where, you know, you ask, you use cold, cold call to begin with rather than hands up. And then you bounce a question around the classroom to confirm whatever it is, you kind of use the same pattern each time. And then pupils are spending less time thinking about what's going to happen next and they can spend much more time thinking about the actual the stuff itself. Social norms is the third concept. Here, McRae explains that when our brains are constantly trying to decide where to direct our attention, sometimes we can revert to imitating the behaviour of others. If everyone else is like doing a particular thing or has a particular attitude, then it's probably a good bet for us to go along with them. And, uh, you know, it makes total sense, doesn't it? You know, it's like it reduces the risk that you end up doing something that's like not going to lead to success and reduces failure, things like that. And so basically, this is what social norms are. Social norms um, are the kind of like, basically social norms are when we adopt or the behavior and attitudes of others has a, has a big influence on, the, on our own behavior and attitudes. And this is like one of those things that is like pretty heavily unconscious we're not always massively aware of the, the huge <laughs> effect of social norms but it is really big and it's there and it's one of the reasons that school is able to operate you know without social norms schools would just collapse it really would you know a whole class of 30 people sitting down and listening to the teacher 
you know, the reason that's happening is because there's this kind of like power of everyone else doing it. So I'm not going to like just get up and wander around. It's a kind of thing. Um, and so to like, to, to kind of leverage the power of social norms in school really is about trying to increase the visibility of those desirable behaviors and attitudes that you want other people to adopt. Um, so it's like calling out great behavior when you see it, being really specific about what it is that you, you want other people to see. You know, it can be about telling stories about other classes and what they've done or what other people have done in the past. It can be like presenting idols, you know, from outside of school to say, look, here, these are people that you might identify with who, you know, we think are upholding values and behaviors and attitudes that we, we kind of think are, are useful. It can be all of that kind of stuff. Um, I guess that kind of ties into the routines as well, because once you've once you've got a class that go through these same routines, you know, day in, day out, when a new student then comes in and they see that this is the way that the class behaves, then surely that means that they will kind of slot into that as well. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. It, it, it all kind of, they work quite nicely together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the kind of more, the more, the greater proportion of the group of your class that are kind of on board with the, the kind of social norm, the more chance that everyone else will kind of follow along as well. Even the presence of like a single dissenter, as it were, massively increases the chances that other people will decide not to not to go along with it as well. Um, of course, there's like, you know, you could say that routines and norms like kind of suppress individual freedom and like creativity and things like that. But actually, I'd argue that they create the space for you to be able to be more creative because what they do is they strip out a lot of like the you know unnecessary and redundant like decision making that you need to make so you can actually focus on like the the kind of the the thing you're learning about and be like have extra cognitive capacity to learn about that they also like when you have routines and and strong norms in place pupils feel safer in the classroom um, and more comfortable and that's just like for particular Pupils, especially vulnerable pupils, like that's really important as well. I mean, you know, you were talking about, you know, the risk that maybe they might suppress. Could it also be that, say you say, right, you know, on a Thursday afternoon, the norm is, the routine is that we throw the routines out the window, you know, like, and make that (laughs) the routine that, that, that for this set amount of time, those rules don't apply. And the routine is that this is the time to be creative and to do other things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, so two things. So. Like firstly, just we can still be creative with when having within a routine. So that's like it's not like throw out the routine and, and be creative. It's you can you can do both. Um, and then the same thing is that yeah, we're not really like what I'm not advocating for is is every class like or every lesson feeling exactly the same. Actually, you know the the, the better language is maybe that teachers have a repertoire of routines mm-hmm. that they kind of draw on and like a big toolkit of them that they put together, pull out the right tool for the right job, the right routine for the right time. So actually, you know, pupils are getting quite a, still quite a rich experience, but it's not all just like brand new and unfamiliar all the time. But I do think then I agree there is a place for actually, you know, helping people to experience stuff that isn't totally familiar as well. You know, that's life, isn't it? You got to be ready for anything. And so, yeah, uh, like a little bit of completely novel, non-routine activity and experiences is probably pretty healthy. I agree. I guess as well, like at secondary school, you know, because you're not with the same teacher every, you know, for for every lesson. Actually, the routines that your science teacher has and the set within their class are going to be very different from the routines that your PE teacher sets up. So you kind of will experience different from the nature of those subjects and what they, you know, what what needs to happen within those lessons. 
Right. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially it can be, you know, this at secondary school in particular, like, yeah, you, you probably, you can probably err on, err on the side of having more routines than you think because of these different experiences that people's going to have by default. On like the other interesting thing around that is that, um, social norms kind of, um, like either reinforce or resist each other. So if you've got like one, like one teacher that uses a whole bunch of like social, X social norms and another teacher that uses a bunch of different social norms, actually that's detrimental to both of them because pupils are experiencing different things in different classrooms. And therefore it's like they both water down the effect of each other's social norms. Whereas if you have a school where like there are consistent social norms across lots and lots of different classrooms then that compounds the effect of of those norms and yeah it like can be really really powerful and this is like one of the arguments for like consistency in schools and why that yeah and your whole school approach to behavior and things like that that's right. why you have that that is the same right you know even though as a teacher you know it's nice to have a bit of autonomy and just do things your own way actually that can kind of like harm the the the, the kind of strength of the experience that pupils might have if she just uh, were a little bit more consistent like one example of nuance is w when you're trying to like help develop social norms it's really important to focus on like what you want to achieve rather than what you don't want to achieve uh like you know the kind of example of this that i use is thinking back to whenever i taught and uh you know one week my pupils like a, a large proportion for whatever reason just hadn't done their homework and so you know the next day i came in and kind of said look team what's going on here loads of you haven't done your homework that's not good enough to sort yourselves out and the message that i was sending when by saying that is that the social norm of this classroom is not to do your homework and so those few people who were actually who did do their homework are now questioning themselves thinking oh, right in danger of not being part of the group you know and so i may have actually like decreased the uh the kind of like attitudes and behaviors towards doing homework by sending that kind of counterproductive message the fourth method then it's about building belonging. This is also a social concept and is related closely to the social norms that we've just spoken about. McRae explains that the power of social norms depends heavily on a feeling of belonging and says that as children get older, they begin to identify less with established social groups like their families or their school, and they begin to crave their own social groups with their peers. These groups then come with their own set of social norms. To harness this in the classroom, People really need to feel as though they belong, McRae explains. It's really about helping pupils to feel like they belong as much as possible to the classroom group or any kind of subgroups within that. And you can do that by just making sure that, you know, every pupil feels like they're included, the most basic level that you know, that people know that you know them. <laughs> so you're able to like, you know about them and that you care, you clearly care about them and what their, their, like, their goals are. But there are also some other things we can do. Um, to build belonging. Whenever people identify that they have things in common, that really increases their sense of belonging. So for example, Kate, you know, if we find out that we grew up in the same town, you know, went to the same school and had the same birthday, all, all of those things would increase the, the, uh, the sense of belonging that we would have to each other. And so in the classroom, um, you know, every so often it can be useful to prompt people to try and find common ground, find those things that they like the values they share, the background they share, things like that. Because you know, people will inevitably create groups around things, but if left to their own devices, sometimes the group, the, the kind of things they create groups around can often be quite superficial, just like what you look like or, you know, stuff like that. So 
and can be useful for teachers to kind of grab that by the throat a little bit and, and help pupils to see that they they can align themselves around more meaningful things like values and background and goals and desires and all that kind of stuff. The the kind of other nuance here is that around belonging is that um, earlier on we were talking about like teaching really well being one of the most important things you can do to build motivation. Like one of the things that makes effective teaching is giving feedback. However, sometimes when you give feedback, pupils can perceive that as criticism and a signal that they don't belong to the group. And so this is like giving feedback can actually like be counterproductive to building belonging. And so what do we do here? Well, the kind of suggestion is that you flip that round. And what we do is as a teacher, you'd say to your class, look, in this group, in this class, one of the values that we all line up behind, one of the things that we rally behind and belong, that makes us belong together is that in this class, we give each other lots of feedback. We constantly strive to improve. And, and you know, we, we, we all support each other in that way. And if you have that like message established in that group, it means when you do give that people feedback, instead of them feeling like they don't belong, actually they feel like they belong even more because they're being like part of one of the key processes of, of that group. And the fifth and final approach is about boosting buy-in. McRae explains that there's a lot of literature which suggests that choice and autonomy can have a big impact on motivation. However, a lot of the research is done in adult workplace settings. McRae says that choice is only really useful when it's meaningful. And as we know, pupils aren't always in the best position to make decisions about the what and how of their learning. Therefore, teachers need to make decisions on the behalf of pupils and then invest their energy into helping pupils to understand the rationale of that decision. So helping people to understand like why we're doing this thing, what the benefit is for them in particular, and then just over communicating that because one of the kind of like things that one of the biases we have as teachers is, is a kind of like overestimation of how much other people understand in terms of the value of what we're teaching, just because we kind of have this curse of knowledge thing going on. And so I think it's just useful to catch ourselves and basically be a little bit deliberate and over communicating the value of like what we're doing and why we're doing it. This is what it means for you. I'm making this decision and this is what you are going to get out of it as a result. Absolutely. Yeah. And the closer you can bring that like benefit, the more powerful it is. Uh, so, you know, like talking to kids about, you know, you're going to have a better career in your 40s if you do these fractions and <laughs> uh, you know, is, 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 can be quite a long term kind of like not all that persuasive a message. And there's all sorts of ways you can, like, there's all sorts of benefits to, to you know, the stuff we learn in school. Um, and so, yeah, you can be, every subject has kind of got some different things. Um, but yeah, definitely some of those will be around just like the increased confidence you have, the joy you get from it, the increased confidence you have, um, the ability to go on and like learn more. So we know what we can do within the classroom to build student motivation then. But what about our own motivation? Teaching is a tough job and there have been countless challenges in the past two years. So should we take McRae's framework and apply it to our own lives? I think so. I think like in the main, most of this, this framework applies to all human beings, not just pupils. Um, you know, the, the mechanics of our brains are more similar than they are different. And yes, there may be some like we may end up focusing on different groups because we're at you know, different stages in our lives. You know, for example, we talked about adolescents and young, very young people may uh, experience the social norm effect less strongly than like teenagers or even adults. 
So there are some differences, but in the main, all of these levers will have an effect on, on this. And as a result, then yes, definitely, if we want to increase the motivation of our, our, our staff body or even ourselves, we can like pull some of these levers. Um, like the, you know, we can, if we take an example of just trying to increase your own motivation, you know, the kind of the classic thing is, you know, you make some New Year's resolutions and, and then, uh, you know, they don't work, do they? You know, you, you say, I'm going to sign up to the gym and eat healthily. And then, you know, what is it like? You eat McDonald's, you haven't gone to the gym for a week. <laughs> it all goes to, you know, yeah. it all falls apart. Whereas, you know, instead, if you decided, you know, I want to actually, you know, get, get fitter, do more exercise, then if we think about, you know, we want to build success, well, that may just mean start small, make sure like you don't go out and try and do a 10 mile run on your first attempt and fail that massively, like break it down so that, you know, you're, you're even like walking fast to begin with and build that up slowly. So you're always experiencing success, like make it a routine. So, you know, every morning, you know, go out and do half an hour or, you know, every time, every Tuesday after school, you know, before dinner, you go out and you do your exercise, something that just like means you don't have to think about it. It kind of happens automatically. Like when you learn the clock goes off um, in terms of social norms, like surround yourself with people who are doing exercise because it'll make it much harder for you to resist that pull. Um, in terms of belonging, like go join a club, you know, if you join a club rather than going to the gym, you'll feel much more compelled and accountable to actually turn up and do the exercise. And then remind yourself of, you know, constantly why you're doing it, like build buy-in for yourself. And if you do all of those things, the chances of you ending up doing exercise compared to making a New Year's resolution are vastly, vastly different. So yes, the framework can be applied to different people, uh, different stages in their lives for different things. You can really see, especially like in a school environment, especially I think the build belonging one being so important in terms of making sure that every teacher in that school really feels like they're part of a team that's all working towards a common thing and feeling welcome and and, val and valued and included is, is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, when we talk about culture, really, that's what culture is, isn't it? It's like the social norms that exist and the sense of belonging that's there and this kind of like, the, the, the sense of purpose that we all rally behind, we all get behind it, it, to, to work towards together. And that, like, that's why good leadership is partly about articulating, articulating a really clear vision that everyone else can line up behind and then doing all of the things you need to to make staff feel like they belong and that they are contributing to that mission and that they, you know, they have things in common as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tez Podagogy. We hope that you found it informative and helpful. Please join us again next week. Today's episode of Tez Podagogy was written and hosted by Kate Parker. If you're interested in accessing all of our education news coverage, you can now get a digital magazine subscription for just £3 for three months. It's available on tez.com forward slash store.